The subject of Second Peter chapter number 3 is heretics. Now, when we use the word heretics, I think sometimes we have a tendency to use that word lightly when we talk about heretics and heresy. A heretic is uh, not necessarily the exact same thing as an apostate, uh, although they do tend to go hand in hand. You can be an apostate without being a heretic, but you can't be a heretic without being an apostate. An apostate is someone that has known the truth and walked away from it, but a heretic is somebody that has known the truth and not only walked away from it, but now they they uh, they bargain in and uh, and they merchandise with false truth. And these are people that are false teachers. These are people that have adopted and embraced bad doctrine willingly, uh, uh, according to their own knowledge. They know that they've done this volitionally. They have have done this, and they are then trying to uh, sell that off to the church. And that is the subject of Second Peter chapter number 2. And he's going to give us a lot of examples, a lot of lessons that go along hand in hand with this. But let me just say, in opening, there are two truths that we need to gain in our mind tonight. One is the truth that was established in chapter number 1, which is this. The Word of God is still true today. The Word of God will always be true. How much culture and society is in step with the Word of God, that may vary, but it doesn't change or affect the Word of God. Uh, we can still be scripturally right today. It may not be popular to be so, but we can still be scripturally right, scripturally correct today, and as Bible believers, we ought to strive to do that. Peter has laid the foundation for this discourse on heresy by pointing to the fact that the Word of God is true, that we have the Word of God. If anybody tells you, well, we just can't know, well, they're, they're either you know mistaken or they're lying to you. Because Peter has just established without any, any shadow of a doubt, we can know. We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. So he has just established that truth. And it is within the uh, the context of speaking about the inspiration of the Word of God in days of old that uh, he begins this discourse. And that's why he says, But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. He's saying when the Word of God was given, when God was speaking through prophets, there were false prophets. And why should we think today, just because we have the completed Word of God and it's preserved for us, why would we think there wouldn't be false teachers today? There are false teachers. And that's the second thing that we need to understand. Not everybody out there with a Bible under their arm and with a, a ministry under their name is going to tell you the truth. Not all of them mean well. Now, I know this is not popular because there's this attitude of live and let live and we ought to just tolerate everybody today. And I'm going to tell you right now, there, there are, and I want to say this exactly how the Lord would have me to say this, you can measure a church not by the things that they will say, but by the things that they won't say. And I promise you, it'd be easy to draw a lot larger crowd if I just shut my mouth about certain things. Uh, it'd be easier to have that vague, empty message that just straddles the middle of the road, that never really talks about sin, never talks about doctrine, never talks about the Word of God, never draws any bold, blatant lines in the sand and says, this is right, and this is wrong. It's a lot easier to draw a crowd if you don't do that. And, uh, you know, there, there's a lot of churches even around us in this part of, of the country, in the Bible Belt, uh, that's how they've drawn their crowds, is, uh, you know, don't everybody, nobody ever gets offended because nobody ever says anything. Amen? <laughs> I mean, if you don't ever say anything that is absolute, then you don't ever have to worry about offending anyone. And so we have false teachers today. You'll find them on the, the TV programs. You'll find them on the radio. You'll find them in pulpits around this very town. I'm talking about people that you know their name, people that some of your loved ones may go to their churches that are false teachers. And not only are they false teachers, but they're heretics. They know the truth, but they have willingly turned away from the truth. And now they are merchandising in false truth. And Peter's going to show us why they do that. Now, very simply, he points to the doctrine of the heretics in these first three verses. And verse number one reveals to us their lying message. And he says, first of all, that it was deceitful. They're false teachers. Not everything that a man in a pulpit says is true. And uh, you'll find this to be true. The more you listen, <laughs> the more you'll find out how much nonsense is preached in pulpits. So it was a deceitful message. And it's still a deceitful message today. There are some, and that's part of the reason that, you know, in a lot of these churches, they, you know, they, they put the scripture up on, on the screens. 
And I'm not saying every church that does that is doing it for this reason. But some of the churches, the reason they do that is so that they can pick and choose what version of the Bible goes along with whatever they're trying to say that day is. And it scares them the idea of people having Bibles in the pews where they can read them, where they can see them. And uh, not every church is like that. I'm not trying to imply that, but a lot of them are that way. And there is a deceit behind it. And they don't want people to focus on the Word of God. So they go through and pick and choose. They find, you know, that this day it's this version because it says it this way. And that day it's that version because it says it that way. And uh, we need to be careful. I mean, anytime somebody tries to pull the light away from the Word of God, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. There's something wrong. It ought to be your preacher ought to love for you to have your Bible in your lap when you're sitting in church. And I love for our people to have their... I like to hear the rustle of the pages. It tells me that, that our people uh, love the Word of God and that they have it in front of them. It was a deceitful message. But now this is important. He says this, who privily... Now what does that mean? Secretly. Secretly. Privily shall bring in, notice this phrase, damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. What does that literally mean? It was damnable. We might use this word, destructive. Destructive. Some of the things they teach, beyond just being wrong, they are destructive. They are destructive in that sometimes they cloud the gospel. Sometimes they rob preeminence of Jesus Christ. Sometimes they distort the way that God has revealed Himself. Let me tell you something. Doctrine matters. It does matter. I know there's some, and sometimes it's a matter of, of semantics. Sometimes what they're saying is, is we don't like fussing and fighting, and they've been in churches where there's been fussing and fighting. But we ought not shy away from doctrine. All Scripture is given away, given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Every single jot and tittle of this Bible is doctrine. And it all conveys and teaches doctrine. And doctrine matters. You know, there's a lot, and, and there's a name I'm going to throw out here, and the Lord may let me throw a few more out here as I go along, but I, I want to give you an example. Most of y'all probably, you've seen on TV, uh, T.D. Jakes. You ever seen T.D. Jakes? I'm sure that you have. I've had a lot of good... Church-going people love God, come talk to me about T.D. Jakes. And they'll say, well, you know, preacher, he's such a good preacher. He's got away with words and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, I may not agree with him about everything, but what does it matter? T.D. Jakes is what we call a oneness Pentecostal. I don't know if you know what oneness Pentecostalism is, but T.D. Jakes denies the Trinity. Now, this is not this is not my opinion. This is not me picking apart his messages. By his own confession, he denies the Trinity. He believes in what we call modalism. In other words, he does not believe there is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. They believe, or he believes that that it is one God, but he expresses himself in three different modes. Maybe like you might uh, consider water. Water can be liquid, solid, or gas. That's what he believes about the Trinity. And uh, in other words, he believes it's Jesus alone. There is no Father. There is no Holy Ghost. The Father and the Holy Ghost just other names for for Jesus. Well, let me say, I roundly deny that. I believe in the Trinity. I believe that we have one God in three distinct persons. And I believe each of those persons are just as much God as the other persons. I believe they have distinct personalities, distinct functions within the Godhead and within their communication and relation to humanity and the plan of redemption. It, it is heresy to reject the Trinity. There are three that bear record in heaven, and there are three that bear record on earth, John said. you Listen, you can't deny the Father and have the Son. You say, well, what, what are you saying about T.D. Jakes? If T.D. Jakes believes what he says, then he's an unsaved man. Because you cannot, John told us, you cannot deny the Father and have the Son. You cannot deny the Son and have the Father. Now, that kind of stuff's not popular. I know that. But that, that doctrine matters. That matters. That will distort and destroy a believer's understanding of the Word of God. And I could give you a thousand other names. I can't really talk about Joel Osteen he don't believe nothing. Amen? <laughs> you know, but either way, it is a damnable doctrine, and they believe damnable doctrines. They believe things that are destructive to the believer. And so, you know, it's easy sometimes to say, well, we don't always agree, but that's okay and everything. Listen, not everybody on my bookshelves do I disagree or do I agree with 100%. Trust me. You're talking to a preacher. I've got an office at the house. I've got a book. Last time I counted, I had well over 500, and that was about two or three libraries ago that were given to me. I have no doubt probably now over a 1,000 books. I do not agree with or endorse everything within the pages of those books. 
But we need to be careful, we need to be cautious, because there are wolves in sheep's clothing that are seeking to profit from believers and to profit uh, based upon their ignorance of the Word of God. We need to arm ourselves against this. So he, he denotes their lying message. Look at verse number 2. He denotes their lascivious morals. He says, and many shall follow their pernicious ways. Now, what does pernicious mean? It means lascivious. It means yielded to lust. Yielded to lust. That's basically what it means. In other words, they have a carnal message. And they have carnal ways. Um, we live in a, in a day today where all manner of immorality is not only allowed in the church, it's sanctioned by the church. And that's part of the reason you're seeing, I mean, it, it, it's not uncommon, listen, it's not uncommon when the sodomites are marching for their rights for there to be two or three or four or five quote-unquote religious figures marching in the parade with them. Now, God wants nothing to do with that. I want nothing to do with that. I love those people. They need Christ. Christ loves them. Christ died for them. But their ways are an abomination to God. And uh, that doesn't mean God doesn't love them. Uh, my ways were an abomination to God, too. God does love them, and we ought to love them as well, but that doesn't mean we have to be permissive concerning their their ways. Well, listen, it ain't hard to build a church if you build it on carnality. It's a lot harder to find sold-out, separated Christians than it is lost folks and carnal Christians. And what does it say? Many shall follow their pernicious ways. I promise you, there will always be somebody, for every, for every God-called preacher that stands up and calls sin what it is, there will always be somebody that stands up and says, well, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. What does it matter? What does it matter so much? Uh, what does it matter who a person finds love with? What does it matter what Bible a person reads? What does it matter what a person believes about uh, about doctrine or about the end times or about baptism? What does it matter? And that, that person, listen carefully, will always draw a crowd. Because that's the way of this world. There's always going to be folks. The Word of God is at aught with human nature. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. And they will always draw a crowd. It speaks about what the ungodly saw. They saw their pernicious ways. And it says this, notice what they said, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. Evil spoken of. Part of the reason that the church has lost so much authority in this day is because it's allowed so much nonsense to go on. Anything qualifies as a church anymore. You know? Anything qualifies as a church. You know, it used to be if folks wanted to open a bar, they opened it and called it a bar. Now they open it and call it a church. You know, that's nonsense. We need to guard ourselves against that. We see their lascivious morals. Then notice the beginning of verse number 3. We see their lamentable motive. It says this, And through covetousness shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you. In other words, you know what it means? They're in it for the money. And they see the people in the pews as customers. And you know, you know what the age-old adage is to good business, right? The customer is always right. And so whatever message people want to hear, that's the message they give them. And that's part of the reason for their popularity. Now listen, I know some folks are just ornery and unlikable and uh, and don't try in ministry, and because of that they've got a small church. And I know some folks that are that are hindered because of of health or because of various reasons, and they don't have a you know a big church. I'm not saying that that it's it's wrong to have a big church. I'm not saying it's right to have a small church. But I'm saying this that the wrong kind of preaching will always draw a big carnal crowd. It's always been that way. It's still that way today. I promise you there's somebody in the 120 years Noah preached that said, oh, that rain ain't going to fall. And who drew the bigger crowd? <laughs> the scoffers or the preacher of righteousness? So we need to understand this. We need to, we need to acknowledge this. We see the doctrine of the heretics. Notice the doom of the heretics. He says, notice its nearness in verse number 3. After he says they're going to make merchandise of you, he says, whose judgment now of a long time sling, lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. That word lingereth and slumbereth. You know what it has the idea of? Now, if you've been to Baptist church, you've seen this. It's this right here. It's, it's that nodding when the preacher gets a little long-winded. And basically what Peter is saying is, he said, look, God's not nodding off. He's paying attention to everything that's going on in the church. We see its nearness, but then notice its nature. Now, there is a lot I would love to say about these verses, but I'm going to have to confine myself because of time. But I want you to notice the basic, the overtone of what Peter is saying. And he gives us three examples from past history of how God notices and judges sin. It may seem like it takes a long time, but God notices and judges sin. In verse number four, he points to the angels and their presumptuous lives. He says, for if God spared not the angels that sin, 
but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. Now, what is he talking about when he says that? He's talking about the angels that revolted against God with Satan and were cast out of heaven. We have reason to believe, and there's a lot of speculation about the spirit world and about demons and their various classes and ranks and so on and so forth. But evidently, according to to what Peter says here, it seems pretty clear that those angels were cast down and put in prison, in chains of darkness. So those are not the demons that are yeah, inhabiting and indwelling the, you know, possessing the, the maniac of Gadara or the, or the uh, child at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. No, those are other demonic influences. But those angels were placed in prison. The word is Chataris. We talked about it uh, a couple weeks ago about what that place was. That's the place we believe where Christ went down and uh, preached a, a victory message after the cross. And basically what he's saying is this. Even the angels of heaven, with all their glory, with all of their power, when they crossed God, they didn't get away with it. So these false teachers that exalt themselves against the authority of an almighty God, they're not going to get away from it. God has got their number. God has got their name. God has got them figured out. God has got a sentence ready for them. Now, that's encouraging to me because sometimes they don't feel like it. Let me just say this, and I know I must hurry. I know I must move on, but let me say as a preacher, and I, and I believe and I hope by the grace of God to be a preacher of the grace of God, the Word of God, the Gospel of God. I hope to be true and to be honest. I hope to be following and obeying God. And I have people come to me all the time. You, all the time people come to me and they say, Preacher, I don't know why we're not packed out. I don't know why we're not having to set out chairs every service. Preacher, I don't know why, I don't know why more people don't come and get in on this. And, you know, I, I gotta confess to you, not because of my preaching, but because of the good people, because of the good music, because of the liberty in the preaching, and because of the work that God's doing, there's times that I wonder the same thing. I think, man, I get so fed when I come in here. And, you know, we talk about that with the seniors ministry. I get so fed when I come in here. And sometimes it can be discouraging as you labor and work. And then you see a guy halfway across town, has no standards, preaches no doctrine, uh, has no passion for souls, but gets up and preaches a social message on issues, you know, never preaching the Word of God, just preaching on social issues. And people are clamoring to get in the doors. Sometimes that can be discouraging, just to be honest with you. Sometimes it can be frustrating, uh, just to be honest with you. And sometimes you think to yourself, why is it that those people prosper? Well, Peter wants to remind us that if the angels in heaven didn't get away with their unscriptural behavior, then false teachers won't either. He points to the angels and their presumptuous lives. Then he points to the antediluvians and their permissive loves. Now, who are the antediluvians? They're the folks before the flood. Okay? We're post-diluvians. You ought to put that. Next time you have to fill out a government form, they ask you what, like, what, what race you are, you ought to put post-Diluvian. That confused him to death, wouldn't it? He says this in verse 5, And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. The wickedness in the day of Noah we know is similar to the wickedness it's going to be in the days when the Son of Man returns. And we're seeing it more and more and more and more. Who would have, listen, who would have ever thought right down here, a few miles down on Clinton Highway, who would have ever thought right down the road from here that, that you, you'd, you'd have to go in the bathroom with your little child because you couldn't be guaranteed that they keep perverts out of the bathroom down at the Target down the road? How wicked it is. And we live in wicked days. You know, we live in wicked, evil days. And it can be discouraging sometimes. But you know what God wants to remind us of? Every single one of them perished in the flood. But God preserved Noah. God's able. God's able to wipe every one of them out in a moment if he so chooses to do so. We need not get discouraged. And then he points to the abominable and their perverted lust. You say, now who's that? Well, look at verse number 6. He says, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an ensample unto those that after should live ungodly. He points to Sodom and Gomorrah. Boy, today is becoming more and more like Sodom and Gomorrah. The militant sexual perversion of today harkens back to what existed in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. A lot of people have trouble understanding what happened that night in Sodom when the two angels come to get Lot 
and his family. And the men clamor around the door and they say, give us these men, deliver them to us that we might lay with him. Why were they so interested in these two men? Why was it that they were so lustful and so insistent on laying with these two men? I'll tell you what I believe about this. I believe they had had a little bit of a problem with Lot all along. The Bible says he vexed his righteous soul. We're going to read that here in a moment. Vexed his righteous soul. And I believe every time they told a dirty joke and Lot would blush, I believe it got under their skin. Every time that they'd want to go in with the revelings and Lot would sort of pull away to a corner, it got under their skin. You see, in Sodom, in Sodom, living an alternate lifestyle wasn't an option. You had to. And this is what I think. I think those two men came into the city and walked into the house of Lot, and they didn't turn aside into any of the dark and wicked and vile places to satiate their unnatural lust. They went straight to the home of Lot, the most righteous man there. And I think what crossed their mind is, if they're not sodomites, we'll make them some by the morning. How dare they walk through our cities and judge us by their abstinence from our wicked ways. We're headed there. We're headed there. Can I, can I just say, I know this is way too common sense for government to adopt this, but you know what a real common sense solution would be to all this bathroom nonsense? A family bathroom. Don't they already exist in many places, a place with a locking door where an individual can go? But that's, listen, that's not enough for them. What they want is they want you to be forced to be okay with their perversion and their iniquity. Just like it was in Sodom and Gomorrah. How dare they walk through our streets and not partake in our wicked ways. Well, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? We know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. God left the place in an ash pile. Listen, it, you know, it was unlawful then. <laughs> it was unlawful then, and it's unlawful now. They can pass any laws that they want, and it won't change God's law. And I don't say that with joy. I don't say that to gloat. It breaks my heart to see humanity in such wickedness. But I also will never apologize for God being right. And God's right on this just as he's right on everything. And we ought to love those people. We ought to try to reach those people. We ought to try to win those people. And listen, they're welcome in any pew of Wall Ridge Baptist Church, but they're not welcome in any bathroom at Wall Ridge Baptist Church. This will go on the Internet. It will probably be what they use to lock me up. That's fine. They are welcome in any pew at Wall Ridge Baptist Church, but they are not welcome in any bathroom at Wall Ridge Baptist Church. They can use the bathroom they was born to. Amen? But they can't use the bathroom of their choosing. If they want to try to do that, I've got a feeling there's going to be some churchmen they're going to have to answer to. And uh, I believe that's right. I believe that's appropriate. I don't believe that's crazy. I believe it's crazy that anyone would think that's crazy. But that's the way we're headed in this day that we live in. But notice what it says in verse number 7. It says, And delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them, in seeing and hearing, it vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. In other words, you know what it's saying? God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he delivered Lot. And God's able to do that today. God is able. And that's the encouraging word that's given to us in verse number 9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. God can and will preserve us. God will watch over us. There may be some things that we have to endure. There may be some afflictions that come our way. But God is able to preserve the godly and to deliver the ungodly unto judgment. And notice what that brings us to. We see not only the doom of the heretics, but notice the deeds of the heretics. Now, how does he describe them? He says in verse number 10, he exposes their conduct, and he gives a list of things that they are. He says, but chiefly, them that walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. Notice first, number one, they're lustful. Uh, heretics are driven by their lust. How many times have you seen it? Listen, good men can fall. Let me say that again. Good men can fall. But does it not always seem that those that are unbiblical in their doctrine, that they seem to be rife with uh, lustful passions and are driven in such a way? I mean, listen, most of the people in this room, you, you grew up through the 70s and 80s, and you saw televangelist after televangelist fall into iniquity. And most of them, now I want you to listen now, most of them, it wasn't that they were caught in a moment of indiscretion. Most of them were caught with trunk load pornography. Right? 
There's a big difference. And I'm not condoning men that fall in a moment of wit, but there's a big difference. I, I mean, men are human, women are human, they fall, they fail, they mess up, they make mistakes. But some of the ungodliness that has been pulled out of the cars and hotel rooms of supposed preachers ought to make your stomach turn. That's the first characteristic. They're lustful. And not just lust in a sexual sense, but lust of all senses. They tend to be given to the vices of the human soul. Notice not only are they lustful, but they're lawless. He says this, <coughs> excuse me, they despise government. Now, again, we have to be careful with this because there's times that government is at odds with the Word of God, and increasingly more so in this day that we live in. But how many times, and we could go, the prominent one that comes to most people's mind is Jim Jones, but you could go down and you could look at example after example of cult leaders that found themselves at odds with the government, and they had just a, it wasn't, trying to say this just right, they were doing some wicked and ungodly things, but usually their despising of government took precedent of those wicked and vile things. It, it, it predicated them. It was long before then. The righteous have nothing to fear. By the rule of law. We talked about it, didn't we, in First, in First Peter? We're to be submissive to the authorities that are placed over us. But without fail, typically heretics uh, have a hatred of government of any kind, not just federal government, but any kind of authority in government in their life. He says they're presumptuous. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. Um, they are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. And he gives us an example in verse number 11. He says, whereas angels which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusation against them before the Lord. Now Jude sort of gives us a little insight to this because he gives us an example that after Moses died, Satan wanted to take the body of Moses and wanted, I believe, and most commentators agree with me, amen, that he wanted to take and he wanted to set the body of Moses up probably as a shrine for the children of Israel to worship uh, the Roman Catholic Church does that today and has for many years with the bones of venerated saints and so on and so forth and all that nonsense. And uh, probably that's what Satan had a desire to do. But Jude said that even Michael the archangel, when he did dispute with Satan about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. And the thing that's being conveyed there is this. Michael, the most powerful angel in heaven, that's what it means. He's the ark. Angel, He is the most powerful angel in heaven. When he disputed with Satan, he did not do it lightly, but he rebuked him in the name of the Lord. Now, the angels have enough sense to view power and authority and threat with that kind of common sense. But the heretics, they do not have that kind of respect. They do not have that kind of, of attitude. Uh, one of the examples that comes to my mind, and I've shared this with you before. I've had conversations with folks about it before, but uh, back in the 80s, a lot of y'all know who John MacArthur is. You may have books or study Bibles or things like that. I'm sure John MacArthur has a lot of good things that he said, but one of the bad things that he said back in the 80s, he said that the bucket that that the blood of Christ was of of no more power than a bucket of chicken blood. And the thing that he was trying to convey, and a lot of Calvinists are wrong on this point. Um, they were wrong on a lot of points, but wrong on this point as well. He claimed it was the death of Christ and not the blood of Christ that paid for our sins. The Bible doesn't say with the precious death of Christ. It says with the precious blood of Christ. And I believe in, in the blood. But let me say this, that uh, you know, even if I believed the way that John MacArthur does, I still would like to think I'd have enough respect for God and for God's Son to not speak. Listen, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even say... I believe Christ's pinky toe was holier than your pinky toe. <laughs> I believe his kidney was more sanctified than my kidney. Think about the great swelling arrogance to say something like that. What a disrespect, what a sacrilege. And he was I know he was trying to drive a point home, I'm aware of that. But still, listen, an angel won't even speak about Satan in that way. But a heretic will speak about God in that way. They are lawless. And then I want you to notice, and he talks about it in verse number 12 and 13. You can take the time to really study it close, but he says, But these is natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption. Let me say this. That is that is pretty much a hallmark of, of heretics. They don't know how to have a real conversation. All they know to do is to rail and scream and, and degrade and debase those that disagree with them. 
And if you don't believe that, just walk on to any college campus anywhere. You know, it's a big deal right now. Our, our young people, they have to have safe spaces. Are you seeing this now? In colleges, they have to have safe spaces where ideas that they don't agree with are not proposed to them. Isn't it a sad commentary? Listen, isn't it a sad commentary that 60 years ago, kids that age were storming the beaches of Omaha, <laughs> and, and nowadays they're picketing for their safe spaces? Tell me something's not wrong with that scenario. And uh, certainly that, but if you disagree with them, they don't want to give you a safe space. Brother, let me tell you, I've talked to some of them. And they'll sooner cuss you a blue streak. They'll call you every name that their perverted mind can come up with. They don't want to have a conversation. <laughs> but like animals, like natural brute beasts that do not understand reason, that do not understand logic, and that do not understand the common courtesy that a civilized society affords, they just merely rail against the truth. We know that's because they have no better answer to the truth. But still, you see this to be common amongst heretics. Then notice verse 13, he says, what's going to happen? They shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Now, what's he saying? He's saying uh, they, they live with no shame, so they're going to be brought to much shame. That term riot has the idea of, uh, of folks walking through the street in a drunken stupor, laughing and carrying on. And, uh, you know, just, just in absolute revelry and absolute disobedience and rebellion. It has the idea of drunken revelers walking through the night, hassling people around. And the idea is that they have no shame, no shame whatsoever. And, you know, that's how it used to be. We were talking about it on the way in. You know, it used to be if a person was a sodomite, they were at least didn't want folks to find out about it. Now they march through the streets. You know, and, and I mean, it used to be, now listen, lots of folks make mistakes in life. Uh, we, we've, we've had folks in our church, when I was a youth pastor, I had young people go through this. Uh, you know, we've seen this, and I, I don't mean this in a harsh way. Uh, but, you know, it, it used to be that if someone wound up with child out of wedlock, there was a shame about it. Nowadays, there's an attitude of, go ahead and say something. I'll bite your head clean off. How dare you judge me? Well, that's not uncommon. It's always been that way. It was that way in the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's that way even in this day that we live in now. They're lawless. They, they have no, no respect. And he says this. He, note that he says that they're licentious. He, and I think this will explain it. Notice that they have no regard for the normal constraints imposed by time. They riot in the daytime. They thumb their nose at what is acceptable in society. And then notice the next phrase in verse number 13. Uh, says this, that they are spots and that spots they are and blemishes sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Now, what does that mean? That may be a little unfamiliar to some of you as you read that. The idea is this. Of course, at this time, the local church, and it's still this way around here, we're the most biblical church around because we eat every time we get together. Somebody say amen to that. This is probably the most unbiblical meeting we have because we ain't got no food. <laughs> but uh, the the New Testament church, they ate together all the time. All the time. Anytime they met together, they always ate. And much of the teaching, much of the discipleship was done around the dinner table. That's part of the reason that Paul had to command the church of Corinth and said, Listen, don't come and eat the Lord's Supper. He's saying the Lord's Supper is different than all the other suppers. All right. In other words, when we have the Lord's Supper over here, don't go up to the front and say, Can I have a second helping? Right? Because that's not what that supper is all about. And that's what Paul is teaching to the church at Corinth when he says, he says, listen, don't come to the communion table hungry. Don't come to, to stuff your belly full, full of food. You're coming to, to honor and remember the death of the Lord Jesus. You've got meals all week long that you can come and stuff your face and enjoy and, and, and have fun and fellowship, but you ought not treat the communion table in that way. Well, they ate together all the time. That's part of the reason that Paul exhorted that. And the picture here is this, that as they all gather around the table, these heretics come in, and we've got, oh man, your church do homecoming? Okay, Betty, Betty knows, she knows exactly what I'm about to say. I could, she could come up here and preach it, I guarantee you. Our church has homecoming. Inevitably, we have a few folks come in at homecoming. Now, I don't mean the, the Eastern Christmas crowd, alright? I understand homecoming, your, your kids, your grandkids are gonna come in, and we want them to do that. We want to, I'm talking about when, when, when it comes around, there's some folks that I don't know from Adam. Somebody say amen to that. They come around the corner, they see it on the sign, homecoming today, 
and they come in with their eating pants on. Inevitably, we have people like that every year, and if that's the biggest problem we got, we don't have very many problems. So I, you know, I mean, I'm not being cynical, but the picture is these heretics that would come out to the church to, to eat at their feasts and, and would sit around and they would spread their bad doctrine amongst those around while they sat and ate of the food of of those faithful local church members, and that would sport themselves, that would make themselves the center of attention, and, and that, that would, would use as currency their bad doctrine and swapping back and forth uh, and subverting believers. That's the picture that Peter has. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, drive those people away from the table. They have no business there. You say, well, what does that have to do today? We don't now. I mean, we eat a lot around here, but your church may not eat like that. No, but let me tell you something that you do have. You do have folks come into the church house, and I, I can spot them, and most of you all can probably spot them too. They come in, they're, they're like, a, you know, diatrophies, I believe is the name. And uh, they want the preeminence. They want the preeminence in the house of God. And they come in, and I've had folks tell me, I mean, the, I, I visited folks before, and I need to get back on the track here, but I, I feel like this point needs to be made. Let me tell you something. When I visit someone in the home, they've come visit our church, and I come visit them in the home, and when they spend about 20 minutes telling me about all the ministries they want to start at this church, I usually know something's wrong. And let me tell you why. Because what's usually running through my mind is, neighbor, I don't even know you, <laughs> and you don't even know us. Now, I think people ought to have ambition. Amen? I think people ought to have a desire. But I've seen people like that. What they want is they want a position, and they want a place of authority. They're not looking for a church home. They're looking for an outlet to spread what they believe. And they're looking for an outlet for some authority. And they're looking for an outlet to be an important and prominent person. That's the way we see it manifest in our churches today. And oftentimes heretics will do that that very thing. Let me tell you something. I, and I'm everybody's best friend. I understand that. And everybody's my best friend. I love everybody. But do you ever meet somebody that you couldn't figure out why they like you that much? I mean, you, you know, first time you speak to them, they're your best friend. I've had people like, oh, preacher, you just let me know if you need me to do anything. If, if you want me to mow your yard, if you want me to, I'll wash your car, I'll scratch your back, I'll whatever. Let me tell you something, most of the time those people are trouble. Most of the time those people are trouble. Now, if you want to mow my lawn, God bless you, I won't stop you from doing it. But, but most of you know the type of people that I'm talking about. And that's sort of what, what Peter's hinting at. He said, hey, they show up to your dinner table uninvited. Because, trying to be the center of attention and spread about their heresy, he says, you know what they are? They're spots in your feast. They're blemishes. They're stains upon you. Could we say it this way? This might offend somebody, but could we say it this way? Peter says, you're better off without them. You're better off without them. I love everybody. I'd love it if everybody came to Wall Ridge Baptist Church, but there's some folks that we're better off without. There are. And uh, my preacher used to put it this way, and, uh, you know, he was a, a, a master in being tactful. <laughs> you know him. And uh, he was talking to a preacher one day, and uh, actually he was talking to Brother Holt, goes to church with us. And uh, they were at the radio station, they were talking, and uh, they were talking about church and everything, and, and there had just been a, a fresh group of people storm out and have backdoor revival at, at Tabernacle and left, and, Brother Holt said to him, said, Brother Bob, you know, I, I heard about that. I hate to hear that. And Brother Bob said, ah. said, Brother Holt, let me tell you something. The church is a body. And if it doesn't eliminate, it'll die. <laughs> now, what, what kind of commentary he was making on those people, I'll just leave up to you to figure out. He's saying there's some folks better off with that. Peter says there's spots in your face. You don't need them. And then notice finally in verse 14, he says they're lost. It says, having eyes full of adultery, and that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, an heart they have exercised with covetous practices. Notice the final thing he says about it. He says, they're cursed children. They're cursed children. Now, you can go, you can examine throughout your notes when you get time to. I'm not going to take the time to. But what he just described in verse 14 is a lost person. Is a lost person. If someone is addicted to sin if they're corrupt at their very being, if they seduce others away from the house of God and away from the, the word of God. if they, It's interesting it says this. He says, in heart they have exercise with covetous practices. And in the notes it says this, their sophistication. They've got high tastes. Listen, I've, I've never met yet a televangelist that didn't have a Learjet to get around the country in. Why do they need that? 
Why do they need it? Listen, I got I got preacher friends that are on the road 52 weeks a year, and they're puttering around the country in a Camry or you know in a pickup truck. Why do they need a Learjet to get around? They got those high tastes, and then notice their damnation. Says they're cursed children. Notice not only the uh, exposure of their conduct, but notice the exposure of their claims. And now, there's a lot of things we could say about this, and time will not afford it. But look at the next few verses. Verse number 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray. Now, how did that happen? How did they forsake the right way? He says, following the way of Balaam, the son of Bozer, who loved the wages of unrighteousness, but was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. Now, what's he saying when he says that? He's telling the story of Balaam in the Old Testament. And you can study in your own time in the book of Numbers, but basically King Balak of the Moabites comes to him and says, I want you to place a curse upon the children of Israel. And Balaam, he knows that the children of Israel are God's children. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. And Balak continues to press and press and press. And finally Balaam says, okay, I'll go with you and I'll curse him. And you've heard the story about the donkey as he speaks and and the, the angel of the Lord with the flaming sword. But here is the substance of what it comes down to. When he finally gets there and he keeps trying to curse the children of Israel and God won't allow him to, he keeps putting blessings in his mouth. Finally, this is the advice that Balaam gives to the king of Moab. He says, you know, You'll never conquer these people. They're God's people. You'll never conquer these people. So instead, you ought to try to corrupt these people. And he takes his money for the advice that you ought to just try to intermarry the women of Moab with them and try to seduce them and try to corrupt them. And you know what it comes down to? Basically this, that he said, for the right price, I'll sell down the river God's people. For the right price... I'll sell down the river, God's people, and I'll feed corrupting and perverted advice to the enemy, and I will market corruption to them if it will line my pockets. Can I just make a personal statement here? God help me never get so wrapped up in money that I would ever preach anything that hurt God's people. There's times, and and the folks around here are good. I, I Listen, I never feel like my paycheck is a burden to them or a burden to me. I mean, I never feel like there's this dagger swinging above my head if I preach something wrong. I'm just being honest. I never feel that way. But I know a lot of preachers that do. I know a lot of preachers that are afraid if they get on the deacon's pet sin or if they get on the piano player's pet sin that all of a sudden they're going to be without a church and they're going to be out in the cold. I'd rather be out in the cold with God. I'd rather be out in the cold with God. I'd rather preach God's Word and do it as a pauper then preach man's desires and do it as a prince in this world. That's the way they've gone. They looked at the money and they followed the money. And there's a great danger there. There's no doubt. Because, listen, folks that preach the truth usually don't get very wealthy. But folks that will preach a lie, just about anybody. There's times I'll listen to a preacher on TV. And some of them, listen, some of them are very, very steeped in their doctrine. But then some of them just don't have any kind of anything that they're preaching. And I think to myself, you know an idiot could do what they're doing? And then usually the Lord speaks to me and says, well, an idiot is doing what they're doing. <laughs> but it, listen, it don't, it don't take a lot of grit. It don't, it don't take a lot of conviction. It don't, it don't even, for a lot of them, it don't even take a lot of smarts to do what they're doing. It's easy. If you'll sell God's people down the road, it's easy to make a lot of money doing it. Because there will always be a crowd that wants to be appeased. There will always be people with itching ears looking for teachers to teach them uh, bad doctrine and, and, and untruth and things that will, will calm them and, and placate them in their iniquity. What we need to do, listen, I think that's why it's good. You find a preacher that preaches hard, straight, and true, and you get as close under his ministry as you possibly can. The old Abraham, and I don't like to quote Abraham Lincoln, but uh, old Abraham Lincoln used to say, I like a preacher that looks like he's fighting bees when he's preaching. <laughs> and I, I heard another preacher put it this way. I kind of like this a little bit better. He said, I like a preacher that'll that'll gut you and field dress you right in the center aisle, you know. We don't ever have to worry about our preacher being too hard. But we better worry about him getting too soft. I'm just telling you, and I'm not, listen, I'm not even saying that for my people. A lot of the people in this room are our people. They're here. I'm saying that for everybody else. 
you find somebody that will preach the Word of God that isn't afraid of hurting your feelings, that loves you, but isn't afraid of hurting your feelings by preaching the Word of God, and you stay as close to that ministry as possible. There's no telling how many families have been wrecked, 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 because the preacher got onto the kids and the mama pulled them out. I've seen it happen. <laughs> I've seen it happen to good people. There's no telling how many, listen, there's no telling how many families have been wrecked because the preacher said something and, it, and, it, and it, it, it preached on the husband's sin and he got a whole family out of church. There's no telling how many families have been wrecked because the preacher got up and preached on something that made the wife angry and the husband pulled the whole family out of church. It's happened time and time again. You better be careful with that. One of these days, those chickens are going to come home. They're going to roost for you. One of these days, it's going to happen. We see in this passage a biblical sketch and then notice a biographical sketch of them. And I'm just going to touch on this because uh, we're closing in. But he says this in verse number 17. He says, these are wells without water. Now, wells in the Word of God usually typify the work of the Holy Spirit. And we see that in John chapter number 4. What he's saying is this. He's saying they promise water, but they come up dry. They promise answers, but they have none. They promise solutions, but they never deliver. You know how discouraging that'd be for a weary traveler? who have gone all that way and to be so parched, to maybe even be at the point of death and to come up to a well, because, you know, a well from the distance, you can't tell whether it's wet or dry. And that's how it is with ministries, too. That That's a lot of the reason that a lot of folks, they get in with these heretics, and they buy their books, they buy their, their, their sermon series, they, they watch them on TBN and all that stuff, because from a distance, you may not even know what's wrong with them. You ought to Google sometime. Here's a good thing to do. You ready? Pick your favorite preacher, all right? If it's T.D. Jakes or Perry Stone or or whoever or Creflo Dollar, you pick them and just Google this phrase, okay? I'm going to use Creflo Dollar as an example because his name makes me laugh. You know, who would trust a preacher whose last name is Dollar? Google this. Google Creflo Dollar heresy and see what comes up. Google Google Joel Osteen heresy and see what comes up. And judge for yourself. Listen, if, if, if it's a tempest in a teapot, then that's fine. But more often than not, you'll find quotes from these people, you'll find sermons from these people that will say abhorrent, awful things. I was sitting watching TV one day, and old Jesse Duplantis come on. A lot of people like Jesse Duplantis because he don't talk like he's from Louisiana, you know. And, that, and for some reason, people get a kick out of that. I'd sooner listen to Foghorn Leghorn. Somebody say amen to that, you know. I was listening to Jesse Duplantis. This is what he said. Now, this this is my personal testimony. All right, you reject this. You you can reject this, but you're calling me a liar because I heard this with my ears. I heard Jesse Duplantis say on the television, he said that Jesus had a sin nature just like everyone else, and he had to, to fight to resist against sin. Let that ring in your ears next time you see his billboard up in town. I'm just saying, you get to looking a little closer. A well, you can't tell from a distance whether it's wet or dry. But if you get up and stand right overneath it, maybe if you drop a pebble down in it to see if there's any substance to it, you'll find out that they come up dry. He says they sink to the lowest depths, but there's no substance to them. Then he says this, clouds they are carried with a tempest. Now, I love clouds, especially if it's real hot outside. (laughs) But typically, when you see when you see a cloud, there's good clouds and there's bad clouds. Somebody say amen to that. Just because it can soar to the highest height, that doesn't mean it's a barringer of good tidings. And just because these folks soar to the highest heights in society, just because they got the Learjet, just because they got a stadium full of uh, of people, just because they've got you know a, a, a international global outreach ministry, just because they got those things, that don't mean they're right with God. Now, you can have those things and be right with God. I don't know about the Learjet, but, but I mean, you can have most of those things be right with God. I'm not saying those things are bad in and of themselves, but don't take them as an endorsement. Don't take them as some kind of authenticity of their doctrinal purity. No, you say, well, what do I do, preacher? Now, this, you, you ready? You think, and you read, and you study, and you examine. It's amazing to me how many church folks will study for a year and a half before they go buy a minivan, but they'll turn on any old TV preacher and swallow what he says, hook, line, and sinker. God help us. You ought to know what the man you're listening to believes. They may soar to the highest heights, but you may find out there's a tornado in there whenever it finally lets loose. 
And notice what he says in verse number 18, for when they speak great swelling words of vanity. In other words, they know how to talk. I've never met a preacher that wasn't going hungry that didn't know how to talk. That's what you do for a living, you talk. Uh, you know, the, it, I wonder sometimes, it, and, and I guess heaven will reveal this, how many words I'll have spoken in my lifetime. I speak more words in this hour each Monday night than some of the rest of y'all speak the whole week. I know that. And a preacher does that. He, 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 he traffics in words. That's his, that's his job. That's, that's the tools of his trade is his words. Of course they can speak. Of course they can sound good. I remember when I was coming here to pastor and I've shared this before, that uh, they had me come in and preach for a month before they voted on me. And, and, and I'm not saying that was a terrible idea, but I, I'm just going to confess to you what crossed my mind when I found that out. They, they said, somebody made this statement. They said, well, we've heard him preach a few times. They said, you know, anybody can, can preach a few good sermons. But they said it takes a real man of God to preach a whole month's worth. You know what crossed my mind? I thought Oral Roberts could preach a month of good sermons. I don't mean anything. Just because a man gets up and can preach a good sermon, quote, unquote, just because he can dazzle you with his rhetoric, that doesn't mean that he's right with God. Some of the best preachers I have ever heard were heretics. They sounded good. The problem is what they were saying was empty, empty, swelling words of vanity. Ask yourself this question when you go to church. Does my preacher say something? Does he say something? There, all across this town, you'll find places. I remember sitting in a barbershop one time down in Fountain City, and, and, and the guy was telling me about his pastor. And uh, he said, oh, we just got a new preacher down the road, and it was one of these, you know, I mean, uh, full-blown. The guy had so many degrees, he could have been a thermometer from Harvard, from Yale. And uh, he, he started to tell me the topics that he was, was preaching on. It was like elements of the human psychology. Son, I'll sit at home and watch Gunsmoke before I'll come and hear somebody preach on the elements of human psychology. What a waste of time. Preach to me the Word of God. That's what matters. I don't care what so-and-so wrote. I don't care what Harvard or Yale says about human psychology. It doesn't matter to me. A bunch of godless institutions. I want to hear what the Word of God says. Just because a man can get up and go on, carry on for an hour, that don't mean anything. What is he saying? Is he saying anything of substance. He says this, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who live in error. You know, you know who I think about when I hear that? I think about the health and wealth crowd. The health and wealth crowd. You know how they draw their crowd? Because everybody wants to think they're going to get a new car. I've never met anybody that didn't want a new car. Have you? I mean, I, I, now I know people don't want to buy a new car. I don't want to buy a new car. If somebody walked in this room and said, all right, who wants a free car? All right, if Oprah, godless infidel she is, if she was to walk on the Wall Ridge Road and come in this room and say, all right, I'm here with free cars. All right, nobody's going to have to pay tax or anything. Everybody's hand would go up, right? I I would too. I'd say, I'd say yes, I'm, I would like one, you know. And uh, everybody wants a new car. Everybody wants a new wardrobe. Everybody wants that new job. Everybody wants that raise. It ain't hard to draw a crowd when you're promising people things that God won't even promise them. That's how they draw their crowd. Through lusts of the flesh. And when you're getting up and telling folks you can live any way that you want to with no consequence, how could you not draw a crowd? How could you not draw a crowd? You know, that's how, that's how they get through. That's how they get along. That's how they build their crowd. They, they, they speak of the world because that's what they are. They testify of who and what they are and what they love and what they want. They're consumed with lust, preaching to a group of people consumed with lust. They're made for each other. And he says that's how they draw their crowd. Look at verse number 19. He says this, While they promise them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. Now, how many how many times has it been exposed that that a a and listen when I I know I've hit on televangelists a lot I understand that but we could go across the spectrum we could grow go we could look at the bishops in the Roman Catholic Church we could look at the hierarchy in any number of of denominations we could look at these groups you ever see any of y'all ever watch a History Channel anybody okay let me tell you something if you want to learn about history you can't watch the History Channel. If you want to learn about aliens and lizard people, you turn on the History Channel, right? Right? <laughs> it's true, isn't it? You know? Everybody's a lizard person to the History Channel people. And I've met people that I've looked at and I've wondered. You know? I mean, just 
My biblical foundation was the only thing that grounded me. If it hadn't been for that, I would have publicly denounced them as a lizard person because they look like it, you know. But <laughs> I knew Virginia would like that. Um, but, you know, inevitably they'll have somebody on there and they're going to unravel the mysteries of the Bible, you know. God called preachers, been preaching for 2,000 years, and they'll still stand up and say, there's less that I know about this book than what than, than I do know, you know. And I'll say that right now. There are more mysteries in this book that I don't know than there are that I do know. But the History Channel, they're going to figure it all out, you know. And they get some joker on there from, from you know, from Stanford or from Columbia or something. And this guy, he's never believed in the Bible. He don't even believe in basic common sense morality in society. I'm talking about those people. I'm talking about the crowd that they promise liberty. They're going to open your eyes. They're going to unleash and unlock you from all of the archaic, draconian tenets and ideals of, of uh, Bible Christianity. And all the while, they're putting needles in their arms. They're putting bottles to their mouths. They're, they're participating in every illicit, twisted, and wicked uh, sexual perversion that the human mind could ever fathom. They promise liberty, but they themselves are in chains. Stay away from that crowd. All they're going to do is ensnare you. You don't worry about what they say. It doesn't matter how many letters they got after their name. Do they have God on their life? I want to hear from somebody that knows God. I, listen, I don't care how many important people they know. I don't care how many degrees that they have. I'm not saying it's bad to know important people. And I'm not saying it's bad to have degrees. I want to hear from somebody that knows God. That's who I want to hear from. He describes them. Then notice uh, he gives us a biographical sketch of them. But then notice what it says here. Uh, well, no, I'm, I'm going to move past that. Take note of it, though, where it says, For of whom a man is overcome of the same as he brought in bondage. People that are in the chains of sin, you got no business listening to their advice. And that don't just go for preachers, neighbor. That goes for your friends, your girlfriends, your best friends, whoever it might be. People in the chains of sin, you got no business taking their advice. Finally, notice the exposure of their converts. What does it do to the people? Uh, he describes them as being people that had been clean escaped from error, but now they are ensnared. And he gives us basically three things. He says in verse number 20 that the truth has been revealed to him. He says, For after that they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein, and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. Now we know he's not talking about saved people. And the reason we know that is because it could never be said of a saved person that their latter end is worse than their beginning could never be described of a saved person that heaven is worse than being lost. So what he is saying, though, is this. He's saying it would be better for them if they had never even heard the gospel. One of these days they're going to have to stand before God and give an account for what they've done and the decisions that they made. And on that day they're going to have to confess before a, a, an all-seeing and thrice-holy God that they knew the truth, but they walked away from it. They're worse off. In Christ, there's several examples when he when he talked about Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, and he said it's going to be better on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. God help our gospel-saturated, Christ-rejecting society. Because one day they're going to have to answer to God. He describes the truth revealed to them, but then he describes the truth rejected by them in verse 21. Uh, or Excuse me, we already read verse 21. He describes the truth related to them in verse number 22. He says, but it has happened unto them... Uh, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. A lot of folks have asked what that means. Have asked if that, and a lot of folks that believe you can lose your salvation believe that's talking about saved people. Here's the problem I have with that: when you got saved, you became a new creature in Christ Jesus, and God never describes His children as dogs or pigs. Those were unclean animals. Have you ever noticed how no ancient Hebrews ever had a pet dog? Right? It's okay. You can take a moment and think about it. Go ahead. I'm not going to talk about bad about your dogs, okay? It's all right. It's because a dog was an unclean animal in their society. They were scavengers. That's how they lived. I mean, I, I've never listen. I've never seen a, a dog climbing up in an apple tree to get an apple, okay? Some of y'all are going to look for that on YouTube when you get home. But you know an old dog, isn't, isn't it filthy, isn't it vile? And they'll do that, won't they? They'll get to eating that grass and they'll vomit. And they'll go and lap up that vomit again. You know, that's their appetite. That's their appetite. You say, that's gross, preacher. Yep. And the appetite of lost sinners is gross too. And even worse than that, the appetite of heretics that have known the truth and turned away is usually tenfold worse than those that have never known the truth. Let me tell you something. 
you'll find greater morality in the darkest jungles of the Amazon than you will on most college campuses. That's the truth. You'll find more morality there than you will in the places where once the light of the gospel is shined, but has been snuffed out by the unbelief of secular humanism. He describes that they are foul within, but then he says they're filthy without. He describes them as a pig, as a sow uh, that was washed, is now wallowing in the mire. It doesn't matter how they try to clean themselves up. They'll eventually go back to it. They'll ev- now, the opposite is true of a saved person. For a saved person, it doesn't matter how vile their life becomes, they'll always either go back to God or God will take them home. One of the two. The lost person is the other way. It doesn't matter what they try to do. They'll go, listen, they'll, they'll get the unclean spirit out of their house, and then they'll go and they'll come home, they'll find it swept and clean and empty and lonely, and they'll go out and take seven other spirits. Worse, worse than the one that they had, and the end of them is worse than the beginning. You say, what does that mean, preacher? Is that encouraging? Well, I don't know if that's encouraging, but I'll tell you what is encouraging. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the just and the righteous and how to reserve the ungodly under the day of judgment. But you know what it should do? It may not encourage us, but it ought to give us a soberness and a caution in who we allow into our lives. I'd say most of the time, for for 90% of what you're going to see come across that television screen, you'd be better just keep changing the channel. Now, that's not true of everyone. I know that. There's some there's some God-called preachers in this town got television. I'm not saying it's true of everyone. But I'm saying that the, a lot of the big names, go ahead, examine their life. Come back and tell me. Come back and let me know. Go ahead and run their names. Come back and tell me what you find. You'll be astonished when you find the heresy that is pervasive in that culture. 